Let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6, it's on page 241 in the ESV Pew Bible, and that's the translation we'll be looking at this morning. My guess is that most of you have come to church today not because you were compelled to come, coerced or cajoled into coming. Maybe some of your kids were, but hopefully you weren't. I realize that sometimes we show up at church, we realize we have a ministry obligation. Sometimes we come out of habit, we realize that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as some are in the habit of doing, Scripture says, but to gather all the more, encourage all the more, as we see the day of Jesus approaching, drawing near. Uh, We recognize that being in church is a good thing to do. It's good for us. It's good for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to be encouraged. We need to be built up. We need to be blessed. We need to be blessing others, building them up, encouraging for all these reasons. But I believe that the vast majority of us have also come to church today, whether we're conscious of it or not, for one overarching primary reason, and that is because we know we need the Lord. We need God's presence in our life. We cannot do life apart from God, and we will perish in eternity apart from God. And so we have come, in a very real sense, to behold our God, knowing that nobody else, nothing else, all the world can compare to Him. In other words, we are seeking the Lord. We are seeking His presence in our life, individually and corporately as His people. And according to Scripture, this is a good thing to do because Psalm 105.4 says, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Now in one sense, um, God's presence is everywhere, right? God is omnipresent. So So He's present everywhere. And then we also understand that God is with his people in a special way. Uh, uh, We quoted earlier, uh, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We were looking at that last hour at Truth Tracks. We looked at persecuted Christians, suffering Christians throughout the world. So there's a special sense in which God is with believers. But when scripture says to seek the Lord's presence, it's calling us to pursue and enjoy as believers a conscious awareness of God's power and blessing, His awesomeness in our lives. Just last hour, we were talking about how would our lives be different every day if the reality of the resurrection was at the very forefront of our minds. That's beholding our God. Hebrews 11.6 says, Whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. So seeking the Lord, seeking His strength, seeking His presence continually is a good and proper thing to do. But how we go about that is critically important. And that's a lesson that David and the Israelites had to learn the hard way. And the Holy Spirit has included this account in Scripture for our sakes as well. So with that in mind, look at 2 Samuel 6, page 241 in the Pew Bible, 
The title of today's sermon is, Be Careful How You Worship. It's not a fancy title. It's not a clever title. It just dawned on me it's not even an alliterated title. But it's an important one. Be careful how you worship. In the previous chapter, 2 Samuel 5, David became king and conquered Jerusalem, making it the capital of the nation Israel. And David wants to make Jerusalem not only the political capital of Israel, but the religious capital of Israel. For this would unite the people even further. And so he wants to bring the ark of God that gold-covered chest that housed the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone on which they were inscribed, that God gave to Moses. The ark, because it represented the presence of God. He wanted God's power and blessing upon His people. So look at verses 1 and 2 of 2 Samuel 6. We'll start there. We'll cover the whole chapter today. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So this is a big deal. This was a momentous occasion. David takes 30,000 representatives, 30,000 of his choice men to bring the ark to Jerusalem. He, he uh, takes them to Baal Judah, that is also known in Scripture as a Kiriath Jearim, to transport the ark of God to Jerusalem, which would have been a distance of about seven or eight miles. Now, this is the first time that the ark has been mentioned in Scripture since 1 Samuel 7. You can turn back there if you want to. You don't have to. But I want you to understand that this occurred long before David was even born. When Samuel himself, the prophet, was still very young. Months earlier, just before uh, Samuel became the judge of Israel, the Philistines had captured the ark. When they defeated Israel horribly in battle, slaughtering, ironically, 30,000 men. So I find it interesting David's bringing 30,000 men to bring the ark to Jerusalem. When the Philistines captured the ark back in the early days of Samuel, again, long before David was ever born, we're talking over 20 years earlier, they took it to one of their five principal cities, a city known as Ashdod, that housed the shrine of the Philistine god Dagon. And they put the ark of God in the temple of Dagon as sort of a a trophy of war. And when the lords of the Philistines came in the next morning, interestingly, the statue of their god Dagon was toppled over and fell face first in front of the ark of God. And so, uh, being the good worshipers of Dagon they were, they set their god back up on his feet. There's some irony in that, isn't there? set their God back up on his feet. And the next morning they walked in, and once again, Dagon had fallen over, face first before the ark of the Lord, the ark of the God of Israel. And this time, his head was broken off, and his arms and legs, and they were strewn across the entrance of the shrine. God was sending them a message. And God reinforced this message by plaguing the citizens of Ashdod with with tumors, 
and with swarms of rats all over the city. Everyone became terribly afraid, so the Philistine leaders removed the Ark of God from Ashdod and took it to another one of their five principal cities. And God did the same thing there. Tumors, rats everywhere. So they transported it to a third city, but when they brought it to that city, they were like, "Uh uh-uh, you're not bringing that thing in here. Send it back to where it came from. We don't want any part of this. So the Philistines, really not knowing how to handle the ark, wanting to be respectful of it, they put it on a brand new cart, had never been used before, that was drawn by oxen, and God providentially led the oxen to the Israelite city of Beth Shemesh. Now, picking up the story there, here's what we read at the end of 1 Samuel 6. So we're in 2 Samuel 6 for today's text. But right now I'm in 1 Samuel 6, verse 19 through chapter 7, verse 2. I need to turn there myself. 1 Samuel 6, beginning in verse 19. And he, that is the Lord, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, this was in Israel, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord, or looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned, because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall go up? Shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of kiriath Jearim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of kiriath Jearim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at kiriath Jearim, a long time passed, some twenty years, And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So the ark represented the very presence of God. If the ark was with you, the blessing of God was upon you. The power of God was with you. Even as you went out to battle, that was the idea. It represented the very presence of God. In fact, we read in verse 2 of 2 Samuel 6 that The Lord's very name was upon the ark. It was the ark of God. It was the ark of the Lord God of Israel. His name was there. Furthermore, we're told in verse 2 of 2 Samuel 6 that God sat enthroned between the cherubim on the lid of the ark. So this wooden chest, which was covered inside and out with gold, was also called the ark of the testimony or the Ark of the Covenant, because it contained the two tablets on which the Ten Commandments were inscribed. The lid was also made of gold, and it formed a seat between the two sculpted images of the cherubim. And the Lord sat enthroned between the cherubim. That's where the presence of God was. God said to Moses in the book of Exodus, there above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant, there I will meet with you. And I will give you my commands to the people of Israel. Throughout Scripture, cherubim are portrayed as angelic beings who are constantly involved in the praise and worship of God. They point to the majesty and the glory of God. According to the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible, 
it says their purpose seems to be protective. To prevent, perhaps only symbolically, unauthorized individuals from entering space where they are not allowed. And the ark of God was placed in the tabernacle in the most holy place where only the high priest could go how many times a year? Once, just once, on the day of atonement to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice upon the ark to make atonement for the sins of the people. See what was happening? Through it all, God was painting a picture to help His people understand what it is required for a sinful man to come into the presence of a holy God. You cannot approach God. You cannot even look upon God lest you die unless an atoning sacrifice is made for you. And of course, we know that God's requirement of the ultimate atoning sacrifice was met uniquely and perfectly and fully in Jesus Christ, His Son. In fact, the symbolism of the ark in salvation is seen even in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we celebrate today. The Lord's Day. The first day of the week in which our Lord was raised, not just on Easter Sunday, but every Lord's Day together as His people. When Mary Magdalene came to the tomb seeking the body of Jesus, what did she see? She saw two angels sitting on either side of the bench, the grave bench, where the body of Jesus had been placed. What's the significance of that? Well, I think just as two cherubim sat on either side of the mercy seat, so two angels lay on either side of the place where the sacrifice for the sins of the world had been laid and was raised and exalted to God's right hand. Interestingly, no mention of the ark occurs at all during the reign of Saul. This seems to suggest, though it is an argument from silence, that Saul had really no interest in the ark, no interest in pursuing the presence of God like David did. Indeed, we know how Saul treated the priests of the Lord, right? He slaughtered the 85 priests at Nob. So so Saul was all about Saul. Saul was all about image. Saul was all about, uh, at one time he was zealous for the nation Israel, but never zealous for the Lord God of Israel. But David was a man after God's own heart. And so he sought the presence of the Lord in his life. He sought the presence of the Lord in the life of the people that he was called to shepherd. So, because Saul did not seek to honor the Lord and to pursue his presence like David did, the ark remained for 20 years, 20-some years actually, in Baal Judah, or Kiriath-Jerim, in the house of Abinadab, until David came with 30,000 men to bring the ark to Jerusalem. That's a bit of a background. But now look at verses 3 to 10 of 2 Samuel 6. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, 
Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means the breaking out against Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. It's time of celebration. Singing and dancing is turned into a moment of shock, anger, and fear as God strikes Uzzah dead. That's why I almost titled this sermon, The Day the Music Died. What went wrong? What was Uzzah's error? That's what Scripture calls it. And if it was an error, a mistake, then why did God judge him so severely? Well, the problem didn't start with Uzzah, but with how the ark was being transported in the first place. In fact, as I began reading verses 3 and 4 and all, when you saw that it was placed on a new cart, you might have thought, wait a second, am I still in 1 Samuel or in 2 Samuel? Because that's what the Philistines did. They put it on a new cart. And that's what the Israelites were doing. They were imitating the Philistines in this regard. But God had given very clear instructions that the ark was not to be carted. The ark was to be carried. God had provided loopholes through which poles would go in. The Kohathites, who were a part of the clan of the, of the tribe of Levi, they were supposed to carry the ark on poles, not looking into it, Definitely not touching it. But that's not what David and the Israelites did. They sought the presence of the Lord, but they were doing it in their own way, actually imitating the practice of the Philistines. They were imitating the Philistines instead of obeying God. And had they done what God said in the first place, then the oxen wouldn't have stumbled. Uzzah wouldn't have stretched out his hand. Uzzah wouldn't have died. It was a costly mistake. Verse 7 says, Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error. And he died right there by the ark of God. That particular Hebrew word for error appears only here in Scripture. It's not used anywhere else. But according to the Dictionary of Biblical Languages with, semant with Semantic Domains, it is defined as an act of transgression against the will of God, but in the sense that this word implies either a rash, impudent act, or an irreverent act, or an accidental wrongdoing. So it's wrongdoing in the sense it violates the will of God, but it's, it's kind of a spur-of-the-moment thing. You're, it's, it's a rash response. You're really not thinking, and, and you're not being respectful and thoughtful of how you go about it. And I think that term, accidental wrongdoing, really describes what's happening here. There is nowhere in the text that indicates that 
Uzzah was purposefully rebelling or disrespecting God. What he did was a mistake. It was an error. He shouldn't have touched it, but his attentions were probably good. The oxen stumbled and he sees the ark starting to slip, so he instinctively reaches out his hand and lays hold of the ark to steady it, lest it fall to the ground. What happened when Uzzah touched the ark? God exploded in fury and struck him dead. So writes R.C. Sproul in his classic bestseller, The Holiness of God. Someone gave me this book over 30 years ago when I was in my senior year in Bible college. That book had only been published five years earlier, but now, decades later, has become a classic. And there's not many books that I read that stick with me 30-some years later, but this book, The Holiness of God, is one of them. I remember how R.C. Sproul uh, delved into this text and, and talked about the holy justice of God in chapter 6 of that book. And if you have not read that book, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, I urge you to get it. I urge you to read it, and especially chapter 6, Holy Justice. R.C. Sproul concludes that chapter by saying that when God killed Uzzah, quote, it is if he were saying, be careful. While you enjoy the benefits of my grace, don't forget my justice. Don't forget the gravity of sin. Remember that I am holy. End quote. And this message, brothers and sisters, was not simply for the Old Testament saints. The same God we meet here in 2 Samuel 6 is the same God we meet in the New Testament. Romans 15.4 says that everything was written that was written in the past, was written for our instruction. It was written to teach us as present-day believers. Even in the New Testament, there are instances where God exercised His holy justice in the midst of all the grace He was pouring out upon the church. You probably know of one incident that I'm thinking of. In Acts chapter 5, we read about a couple that lied and then died. Their names were Ananias and Sapphira. It had been a great time of growth for the fledgling church. Um, we are told in this context of Acts 5 uh, that the gospel was being boldly proclaimed. And people left and right everywhere were believing the gospel, trusting Jesus to save them from their sins. They were being baptized, a profession of their faith. Thousands of people were being added to the church. And those that were in the church, believers, we read that all the believers, I'm reading scripture now, all the believers were united in heart and mind and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would, would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need, end quote. What a beautiful picture. It wasn't under compulsion. They did this gladly and just sharing with anyone that had need, recognizing that, hey, everything I have belongs to the Lord, and I'll gladly give it for you. So Ananias and Sapphira wanted to get on, on this action. They wanted to be a part of this blessing, this great work that God was doing. And so they sold some of their property. And they took the proceeds and gave it to the apostles. 
And they held back part of it for themselves. But they pretended they were giving all of it. And when Peter confronts Ananias, when he brings the offering, his, his wife wasn't with him at the time. Peter said, you know, did you sell this property for so? Yep, yep, absolutely. And Peter said, look, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? It's not lying to us. Ultimately, you're lying to God. When the property was yours, wasn't it yours to keep if you wanted to? And when you sold it, wasn't you could have kept all the money or kept part of it? That was entirely up to you. But you've lied because you sold it and you gave the proceeds and you're acting like you gave all of it when you didn't. And in that moment, God struck Ananias dead and they carried his body out. Three hours later, his wife comes, didn't know what happened to her husband. Peter says, did you sell the property for such and such? Yep. The same people that carried out your husband are going to carry you out too. She dies right there and they carry her out. And it says, great fear came upon the church. Now, here's what I want us to understand. This is a New Testament example. The age in which we are living, the, the age of grace, as we say, the church age. This couple was giving to the church. They were making an offering to the church. It was probably even a very generous offering. I don't know how much they held back from themselves, but apparently it was a small enough amount that they really thought that when they brought their proceeds, everybody else was thinking they were given all of it. So it was probably a very generous gift. But because they were deceptive in how they gave that gift, to make themselves look better in front of others, God struck them dead. It's as if God was telling his people, again, be careful how you worship. While you enjoy my grace, do not forget about my justice. Do not make light of sin. Don't forget the gravity of sin. I am a holy and just God. When Uzzah died, David became angry and afraid at the same time. Angry and afraid. The text doesn't say, why David was angry, except that he was angry over God's outbreak against Uzzah. It doesn't say that David was angry at God. David was angry and then became fearful over this horrific death that he had just witnessed. I think David was angry at himself for being so careless and confused about how the ark was to be transported and the huge price they paid that day as a result. According to the parallel account in 1 Corinthians 13, when they went to go get the ark at Baal Judah, Kiriath-Jerim, to bring it back to Jerusalem, it says David consulted with his officials. But it says nothing about him consulting with the Lord. And my guess is like, well, when the Philistines brought the, brought the ark back, you know, a couple of decades ago, they put it on a new cart and the Lord brought it to the city and everything worked out fine. So I'm sure if we put it on a new cart, we'll be good to go. They simply did what seemed best to them and celebrated along the way until God struck Uzzah dead. All because of carelessness. Carelessness led to a catastrophe. It's interesting, as I was reading this, it dawned on me that Uzzah was the son of Abinadab in whose house the ark had been for these 20-some years. This tells me that Uzzah grew up around the ark. 
And I think over time, he became too casual with it. He became too familiar with the presence of God being around. Too comfortable. And that led to carelessness. And it cost him his life. Years ago, in the early 1990s, mid-1990s, when Ruthie and I moved to Nova Scotia, where I was going to be pastoring a church up there, I can tell you it was in a new way of life for me. Um, I grew up just outside the city of Chicago for a good chunk of my life, have lived in the suburbs all my life. My dad was a businessman that was never much of a handyman, so he didn't really pass things on to me. And almost every guy up there in Nova Scotia was an outdoorsman, either worked you know, in the woods for a living or they worked a farm or in some sort of craft. And so when we moved up there, it was a whole new way of life for me. I figured, you know, these are the people I'm called a shepherd. So I thought a couple of things. Number one, I really should learn some of these skills. They'll probably be beneficial to me. And then I thought, and it's also a good and important way to connect with the men in our church and in the community. And so I was out with an older guy. I say older. He was like in his mid-60s at the time. And I'm thinking, well, I'm coming 55. But you always think of people as older. But once I get that age, you're really not old, right? But he was older at the time. You know, I'm in my, what would have been, I guess, uh, my late 20s. Maybe about my son Elijah's age or whatever. And so we were up there. And uh, this guy, uh, this retired gentleman, was building a house. Uh, again, he was in his 60s, late 60s actually, and was building a house. And uh, I was over helping him just, and I told him, look, I don't know anything. I'm here to learn as much as anything. So uh, he wanted me to be sawing up some boards and some plywood and stuff like that. So he hands me a circular saw. I, I don't think I'd ever handled one in my life before. Late 20s, never used a circular saw. And he showed me on the guard and how you hold this with your thumb or whatever. And I was petrified of that thing. I mean, I looked at him and he had a finger missing. <laughs> and I was like... I don't want this to be me. And I told him, I'm just really nervous. Am I going to cut the cord, you know, because it, was, it wasn't battery operated, it was cord operated. And I said, I, I got to tell you, would you show me that one more time? I'm really nervous about doing that. And he said, Matt, here's the thing. I never forgot this. He said, it's good to be nervous. He says, the guys that are nervous about using this aren't the guys that cut off their fingers. The ones that get injured or killed by power equipment, are the ones that get so familiar with it and so casual with it, they become careless. And those are the guys that pay the price for not being nervous. I think the same can be true for us, spiritually, who have grown up in the church and have been around the Word of God all our lives. Kids, here in the auditorium, whose parents bring you to church, God bless you. I grew up in a family like that. I'm so thankful for that. But I've heard God's word all my life. And even if you didn't grow up hearing God's word, you may have been here a number of years, a Christian perhaps for decades, some of you. You've been around God's word a lot. You sit in church. You're, you're sitting in uh, Sunday school classes. You're, you're listening to podcasts. You're hopefully reading your Bible daily and, and all these things. But like David and Uzzah, we can have a genuine desire as believers to seek the Lord's presence, but become careless in terms of how we go about it because we just, we just get used to God's word and really don't think about what the Lord says anymore. It goes in one ear and out the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
heard this before. I've seen it even when I share the gospel from the pulpit, to be honest. Those of you that know the gospel, when I get to that point in the sermon, because we want to make sure the gospel is preached every sermon, yeah, kind of, this is my kind of 30-second time out because I know where pastor's going with this. God's word goes in one ear and out the other, and pretty soon we just, we don't consult scripture like we used to. Like where our life depended on it. Where every situation we face, Lord, what do you have to say about this? In a 2023 Lifeway research study, so that's this year, 65% of Protestant churchgoers, so we're not saying 65, these are people that not only claim to be Protestant, but these are people that claim to go to church regularly. So it's a pretty narrow group. Protestant churchgoers, 65%, say two-thirds of them, say they claim that they spend time with God each day. So out of those that are Protestant, go to church regularly, and were asked, and assuming none of them are lying, say that they, two-thirds of them almost, say that they spend time with God each day. But out of that number, out of that percentage, only 39% say they read their Bibles. So two-thirds say, I'm spending time with the Lord each day, but out of that number, just over one-third saying, but I actually read my Bible during that time. I'm like, well, what are you doing? And my guess is it can include a lot of things. Listening to K-Love, maybe just meditating, maybe praying, but not consulting Scripture. So they're seeking something, I think they're seeking the Lord's presence in their life, but they're not consulting the very word that God has written. This past Thursday at a Reformation Society gathering in western New York, Reed Ferguson presented an outstanding paper called Gospel Assumptions and the Rise of New Age Spirituality. And the title alone kind of sends a message as to what this is about. Gospel Assumptions and the rise of New Age spirituality. And the main concern that he addressed in his paper, addressing one new false teacher in particular, was the problem among believers that ought to know better of subjectivity, being too subjective in our seeking the Lord's presence. And he described it this way, and I quote from Reed's paper, what he means by subjectivity. Allowing impulses, impressions, and feelings to guide us apart from the Word of God. Everyone hears God for themselves and everyone interprets what they hear from a wholly personal perspective. Then Scripture is marshaled not to evaluate their truth claims, but to substantiate them. End quote. God led me to do this. God put this on my heart. I know that God wants me to do this. And then, if they consult Scripture at all, they use it only to find whatever verse taken out of context will support what they've really decided they're going to do anyway. This can happen not only on an individual level, but brothers and sisters, it can happen on a corporate level as churches, and we see it all the time, aim for merely, I won't say this in itself is bad, but merely emotional experiences because they equate 
charged up emotions with the genuine work of God, genuine presence of God. Reed was telling me just last night that he was at one church, and the part that he used to be uh, very um, long ago in his Christian life through some associations, one church, they actually planned the music and literally in the script of how they're playing the music, turn this up, this light now, this and that happen. And then they say, and right here at this point in our program, this is where the Spirit of God comes. I was like, can you say that again? They like program the presence of God to come into their service when they, you know, write out their order of service. I was like, can you imagine the Holy Spirit in heaven? Like, when do I come in? <laughs> Amid all the celebration, a lot of fervor, a lot of spirit, a lot of hype, God's word is completely ignored. So mere emotion is no indication of true worship. Gail Davis wrote, The application of this text is clear. You dare not trifle with a God who is both real and holy, and we forget that there is heat in His holiness. End quote. And that's lesson number one. We are to seek the Lord's presence reverently. Not carelessly, not flippantly, not with an air of over-familiarity, not casually, but reverently. And David got the message loud and clear. And I thank God that this was not his last word about the ark. Look at verses 11 to 13 of 2 Samuel 6. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Remember what David had asked previously? The last time he's quoted in this chapter prior to what we just read, he had asked the question, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And he had left the ark in the house of Obed-Edom. But once he heard that the Lord had blessed Obed-Edom, that belonged to him, David goes and gets the ark from Obed-Edom and brings it to the city of David. It's like, hey, I want this blessing too. Let me share in this blessing. But apparently this time, David consulted the scriptures and ended up answering his own question, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Because in the parallel account in 1 Chronicles 15 we read, then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. This time David consulted the scriptures. He did this time what he should have done the first time, but he wanted the presence of God in his life. He wanted the people that he was called to shepherd and lead to experience the presence of God in their life. So he goes to get the ark and this time does it God's way instead of his way. And after those that bearing, were bearing the ark walked the first six steps, David offers a sacrifice to the Lord. Now this may seem weird, 
But when I came to this part of the text, I thought of a rerun on an episode of season two of Gomer Pyle. Do you guys remember that show? It aired late 60s. So like I was born in 68. So when I watched it as a kid, it was already in reruns. It's a spinoff of the Andy Griffith show. But anyway, in this episode, uh, Gomer's sergeant, Vince Carter, you might remember him, invites him for a family dinner. And the Sergeant Carter says, my mom is an amazing cook. Her Italian food is amazing. Yeah, I think he said bellissima or bellissima, whatever that was, beautiful. Uh, he says, and uh, he says, in fact, I think tonight she's going to serve some of her chicken cacciatore. And Gomer says, what? And he says, chicken cacciatore. Gomer says, say that again. That's incredible. And Sarge's like, it's no big deal. Chicken cacciatore. Go ahead. You say it. Oh, I, I, I can't pronounce fancy stuff like that. Sergeant Carter's like, what are you talking about? Chicken cacciatore. I, I just can't do it. Gomer, listen. Very simple. Chicken cacciatore. That's it. Go ahead. Say it. Uh, go ahead. Say it. Okay. Chicken. How's that so far? <laughs> Thought of that episode. Because I think that's the question David asked when they walked the first initial steps. God, how's that so far? Are we doing it right this time? Everybody okay? Anybody dead? Six steps, and what does he do? He offers a sacrifice to the Lord. Because I think David in that moment knew that God was pleased that they were seeking his presence in accordance with his word. And David offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, some scholars think they might have done this every six steps, which is not impossible, but it would be an incredible ordeal to be able to do that. I think it was probably these initial steps. And then David offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and he says, okay, we're good to go. And what do we read in the very next verse, first part of verse 14? And David danced before the Lord with all his might. Unhindered praise, because now he knew that they were worshiping God his way according to his word. David is able to resume his rejoicing with unabashed zeal because he was seeking God's presence rightly. And I thought to myself, you know what? Within the parameters of Scripture, there is plenty of room for celebration. In fact, Scripture gives us every reason to rejoice as the Lord's people. One commentator writes, this lavish and unabashed celebration of the Lord is an appropriate response to his character and glory. Amen. Both his justice and his grace. His righteousness and his love. His wrath and his mercy. And we read in the second part of verse 14 that David was wearing a linen ephod. So David apparently had laid aside his royal garments and had donned on an, donned on an apron-like priestly garment that was around the waist in order to free himself to participate in the celebration. In fact, the Hebrew words indicate that David was dancing with an exuberant, energetic leaping and whirling about. And, and if you saw the, um, when we went to uh, Sight and Sound Theater, I think 
the gentleman that played David there did a pretty good job of kind of um, uh, recreating, as it were, maybe the kind of dance and celebration that David would have done as they brought the Ark of God to Jerusalem. And again, this was the occasion that scholars think that Psalm 68 was written. What's interesting is that ancient Near Eastern literature provides no other example of kings dancing and celebrating with the common folks in such a procession. They were above the people. But David said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm celebrating with the people. So he lays aside his royal garments, dons on the the, the apron-like clothing of a priest, the same kind that uh, Samuel wore as a young man as he served Eli in the early days of his ministry in the temple. And David dances. He's free. He just dances with all his might before the Lord. So David was the exception. And I thought, doesn't he typify beautifully the ultimate condescension of our Lord and Savior who left the glories of heaven to become one of us? And what do we read in Hebrews chapter 2? Hebrews 2 says that he is not the captain of our salvation. Our champion is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And then the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 22, one of the most well-known messianic psalms, and attributes the words of that messianic psalm directly to Jesus, speaking in the first person, in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Jesus. Psalm 22, applied to the lips of Jesus, who's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters, in the midst of the congregation, our King of kings and Lord of lords praises the Father with his people because he stands with us as our great high priest. And this takes us to lesson two. We are to celebrate the Lord's presence joyfully. Yes, we are to seek the Lord's presence reverently, but we're also to celebrate the Lord's presence joyfully. David understood this. He got this, but his wife didn't. Continuing on to verses 15 to 23, we read, So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David brought burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts, distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both women and men, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel has honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of the servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord, who chose me above your father and above all his house, to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. 
And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Don't tell us why, whether God just shut her womb or David ceased to have intimate relations with her. But it's noteworthy that the narrator refers to Michael as the daughter of Saul three times. She was David's wife, but it doesn't refer to her as David's wife. She's referred to as Saul's daughter three times. And that's because she was a lot more like her dad than she was like her husband. Like Saul, her father, for Michael, it was all about image. It was all about prestige. It was all about being above the people, not with the people. We can imagine her with her her makeup on just right. Not a hair out of place, not a crinkle in her dress. As she looks down out of her ivory tower and despises David in her heart for acting like one of the common folk. And then she rebukes him with her lips as he comes in to what? To bless his household. David tells Michael, you know, Michael, the servant girls aren't my audience. God is. My singing and my dancing wasn't a performance for the people. It was a genuine expression of worship to God. And then he says, if dancing to God's glory makes me look like a fool, then I'll gladly be humiliated all the more. And at the end, we're told again that Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. One commentator says that this is a sad and sobering reminder that a critical spirit stifles fruitfulness. I think that's a good spiritual application of that lesson. The Lord is to be worshipped reverently, and joyfully. Reverently and joyfully. Some of us are good on the one, but not on the other. We're good about the reverence, not about the joy. We're good about the joy, not about the reverence. God says, I'm to be worshipped reverently and joyfully. And I'll close with these powerful words of application from Dale Davis, who wrote this. And I hope you'll listen carefully. In our churches, there are any number of folks who are concerned with services and externals and procedures and mechanics and meetings and decency and order, but who really cannot understand anything of the joy of the Lord. There are some who can muster enthusiasm and gusto over professional sports, but who somehow cannot fathom anything but professional detachment over Jesus Christ. Exuberant praise and tears of repentance are strangers to them. There are doubtless times to be calm and times to be enthusiastic. But can it be right to give all our coldness to Christ and all our enthusiasm to the world? Does the presence of God ever move us? Let's pray. Father, there's so much to be learned from this chapter. I feel like we've but scratched the surface but I trust your Holy Spirit to use your word to drive us to seek your presence reverently and to celebrate it joyfully. Help us to do that, O oh Father, I pray. And if, it, if someone has not yet trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, may they seek your presence today, knowing that you welcome all who come to you in faith through the name of Christ. We thank you for the great salvation you have given us 
Help us not to neglect it, but to celebrate it with reverence each and every day. I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.